0: Learn all about investing in real estate in Inglewood, California, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to Inglewood. Plus syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to Inglewood. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors.
1: All right. So rent resiliency and price resiliency for real estate investors. I'm James Orr. So what is resiliency? Resiliency is a noun. It's either one of two definitions. One, the capacity to recover quickly from difficulties or toughness. Or two, the ability of a substance or object to spring back into shape. Elasticity. So, Tonight we're going to talk about two different things, rent resiliency and price resiliency. And I'm going to define those. So rent resiliency is, how resilient are you to a drop in rent? How tough are you? How how strong are you? What is your ability to bounce back from a drop in rent? And the question that comes up is, how much can rent drop before you have negative cash flow? So that's how I define it. How much can rent drop before you have negative cash flow? And then price resiliency is how resilient are you to a drop in property value or the price of the property? And that is how much can a property value drop before you have negative equity, before you're upside down, before you're underwater? Does anyone have any questions on these? Because I'm going to start using them throughout the night. And now is the time to ask if you have questions, because otherwise you're going to be falling behind. Everyone good? Pretty straightforward? All right. cool. When we measure these, both price resiliency and rent resiliency, I measure them in two different ways. I can measure them in dollars. How many dollars can rents drop before you have negative cash flow? Or how many dollars can price drop before you have negative equity? Or we can look at it in terms of percent. How much can rent drop in terms of percent? Can rent drop 10% before I have a a negative cash flow? Or how much can prices drop? Can prices drop 10% before I have negative equity in a property? And so how many dollars can rent drop before you have negative cash flow? That's what I call rent resiliency in dollars. That's also known as cash flow. If you think about it, how many dollars can rent drop before you have negative cash flow is literally the definition of what cash flow is, right? Cash flow is how much money you have over what it costs you in order to run the property. So cash flow technically is rent resiliency dollars. However, there's no version of that for percent so what percent can rent drop before you have negative cash flow that's what i call rent resiliency percent and there's no equivalent it's not like there's a version of this where you can look at that okay so rent resiliency percent is probably the odd one but rent resiliency dollars is my fancy name of calling cash flow does that make sense everybody okay how many dollars can price drop before you have negative equity or you're upside down or you're underwater that's what i call price resiliency dollars That's equity, right? That's literally what equity is. Equity is how much you have over what the mortgage balance is. And so how much can prices drop before you get to negative equity, before you get to negative equity or you're underwater, is literally how much equity you have. So price resiliency in dollars, also known as equity, what percent can property values drop before you have negative equity? That's price resiliency percent. So that's what I call that, and there's no other equivalent for that, okay? Any questions on these? All right, cool. You guys know I'm really informal, right? You can ask questions if anything comes up. OK, cool. All right, so measured by either the property or the portfolio. So resiliency can be for a specific property in your portfolio. You could say to me, James, how, how resilient is 1234 Main Street to a drop in rent? And you could look at that. Or you could say, James, how resilient is my entire portfolio to a drop in rent? what is the average drop in rent I could have on each property before I have negative cash flow, or you can look at an individual property. So you can look at these either in a per property basis or overall as your port- or portfolio. And we could either look at this from a total perspective where you add up all the rents, you add up all the expenses and you could see how much rents can drop before you have negative cash flow, or you could look at it as, I take all the rents, I divide through by the number of properties I have, I take all of the expenses on the property, I divide through by the number of properties I have, and then you can look at how much it is on a per property basis on average. Does that make sense? Okay. All right, so you could look at this as either a snapshot in time. You could say, right now, in my portfolio, how resilient am I to a drop in rent? Or you can say, over a long period of time, over the next 60 years, what does it look like How resilient am I at each point in time for a drop in rent? So you can look at it either as a snapshot or as a thing over time. And you could say, look, five years from now, I plan on paying off a property or I plan on refinancing a property or I plan on buying a property or I plan on selling a property. And you could say five years from now, at that snapshot in time, month 60, let's say, as an example, what is my rent resiliency or what is my price resiliency at that point? So you could do this looking into the future too and use it as a decision-making tool as to whether or not doing a certain activity, buying a property, selling a property, refinancing a property, uh, cash out, refinance a property, or rate and term refinance a property, or any of those types of things, how will that impact how resilient my portfolio is? Okay, I think I covered all those. Oh, one other thing. You can also look at what is the average amount of risk I have, or in this case, price resiliency, or rent resiliency, over an entire 60 year period. So instead of seeing a chart where, you know, it starts off, I'll use draw on the board here, where it starts off really high, or it starts off really low rather, and then over time as cash flow improves, your resiliency gets better. You could say, hey, what is my resiliency for this entire period? And you could take an average and say, oh, the average is 30%, or 32%, or whatever it is. And you could say, oh, so this one's about 30% on average. And then if you had another strategy you were considering, like this one, You could say, oh, that one has a rent resiliency average over this whole time of 29%. And so you could say, on average, one strategy is more risky than another, even though there may be times when it's below and other times when it's above. But over this entire period, one's more risky or one's less risky than another with this specific measure of risk, which isn't the only way to measure risk, which we'll talk about tonight. Any questions on that? Okay. Um, If if you're doing any modeling in the Real Estate Financial Planner software, I added a bunch of new numbers here. So now you can actually see your average rent resiliency, your average price resiliency, average debt to income, average total debt to net worth, and average total debt to account balance, as well as average months of reserves. And if you click on any of those buttons, they go to all those individual charts. So I added those for you because I wanted to see them. So that's a new tool that's brand new for you guys. Tonight we're gonna look at both snapshot, one specific month and how it measures, and we're gonna look at stuff over time. We're gonna talk about both of them. Any questions? Okay, cool. All right, let's talk about some oversimplified math. I'm gonna give you an example just to kind of walk you through how this stuff works. So let's say you have two different portfolios that you're comparing. In one portfolio, in both portfolios, you have $1,000 per month in cash flow on all your properties, okay? In one portfolio, you have 10 properties that each cash flow $100 each. Okay, 10 properties, $100 each property, that's $1,000 per month in cash flow. And in another portfolio, you have five properties with $200 a month each in cash flow. So you have one portfolio that has basically the same amount of cash flow for both. One of them has more properties with less cash flow per property, and the other one has fewer properties with more cash flow per property. What if rents, let's talk about the ones where you have 10 properties with $100 each. If rents drop by 10%, if rent per property goes from, just as an example, it's oversimplified, $1,000 per month to $900 per month in rent, your cash flow goes from $1,000 per month to zero per month. You lost $100 per month in property. It was only a 10% decline in rent values, but because you only had $100 per property, It went from $1,000 per month in rent to $900 per month in rent. So the $100 in cash flow went away. You now have no cash flow on that particular portfolio. Does that make sense, everybody? Compare that to if you had the five properties with $200 a month each. If rents drop by the same 10%, so rents go from $1,000 per month to $900 per month, now your cash flow goes from $1,000 per month to $500 per month. So in the other one, you lost all of your cash flow when you had a 10% decline in rents. This one, you had a 10% decline in rents, the same 10% decline in rents, but now you have still $500 per month in cash flow. So the the one with five properties with $200 a month in cash flow is more resilient to drops in rent. That's an example of how rent resiliency varies between two different portfolios. Does that make sense to everybody? Anyone lost? Everyone's good? Okay. Let's talk about what happens if rents go up though. Same two situations. You have 10 properties with $100 a month in cash flow or you have five properties with $200 a month in cash flow. If rents go up by 10%, rent per property goes from $1,000 per month now to $1,100 per month. Cash flow goes from $1,000 per month, where you have 10 properties with $100 a month in cash flow, goes from $1,000 per month to $2,000 per month. You doubled your cash flow by having a 10% increase in rent. Okay, and we discussed this, I remember discussing this in the uh, real estate partnerships class where I kind of showed you how cash flow changes. I think Ben was like, we were, Ben and I were talking about this, how rent went up by 3% and we talked about how it's like $50 more in rent, so it's like you only really increased by 3%, but really the cash flow doubled. Remember this? We talked about that. So this is the same idea, right? Where you have a $100 increase in rents, but now cash flow has doubled on you. But if you have five properties, And they're doing $200 a month in cash flow. If you rent, if you have rent increased by the same 10%, then the rent per property goes from $1,000 per month to $1,100 per month, just like the other one, except now cash flow goes from $1,000 per month to 1500 per month. Only an increase of 50%, where the other one doubled. This is another example of how resiliency works, except it's the opposite. Now property values of rents actually went up in this case, and so your cash flow did not increase quite as fast because you were more leveraged, essentially. Does that make sense? Okay. Now let's talk about equity. We just did rent resiliency, now let's talk about equity. So you have a million dollars in equity in two different portfolios, okay? In one portfolio, you have 10 $250,000 properties with $100,000 in equity in each. Okay, that's a million dollars in equity. Or you have four $250,000 $250,000 free and clear properties, where you don't have any loans on them, that's also a million dollars in equity. So you have two different examples. One where you have 10 properties with 100,000 each, the other one where you have four $250,000 properties where you have $250,000 in equity in each. Okay? If price drops by 10%, in the one where you have 10 properties with $100,000 in equity each, that means if prices drop by 10%, 10% of a $250,000 property is $25,000. So the property value went from 250 to 225, but you got 10 of them. So now you have $250,000 in lost equity and your equity decreased over 10 properties. That means your equity went from the million dollars that you had to $750,000. So your equity decreased from 1 million to 750. But if you had the other portfolio where you had four 250,000 free and clear properties, if the price drops by the same 10% we did before, $250,000 properties now worth 225, you had, um, you had four properties at $25,000 decline in value each, that's $100,000 in equity, dec- equity decline total. So now your equity went from 1 million to 900,000. This is an example of how price resiliency works. Okay? You have one portfolio where you have 10 properties, where now you lost $250,000 of $1 million in equity, and you have another one where you have four free and clear properties, same decrease, but now you only lost $100,000 instead of two hundred fifty. dollars Does that make sense? Okay, cool. Now what happens if property values went up? Same $1 million in equity to start, same two situations. You have 10 $250,000 properties with $100,000 in equity each. If the price goes up by 10%, the $250,000 property is now worth two seventy five. dollars So $250,000 increase across all 10 properties in total. So your equity now goes from 1 million to 1.25 million. So you have an increase of 25%. 10% increase in price means your equity increased by 25% as an example. Okay. Or you have the four $250,000 free and clear properties. If the price increases by the same 10%, same $25,000 per property, A hundred thousand dollars for all four, just add them up for four of them. Now your equity goes from one million to 1.1 million. It only increased by 10%. It's unleveraged. Okay, does that make sense? All right. So really, what we're talking about in a lot of these cases is leverage. The more leverage you have, the less resilient you are. The less leverage you have, the less, the more resilient you are. Does that make sense? We just saw that. The more leveraged you are, the less resilient you were. Right? We saw that with rents. Any questions on this? All right, cool. All right, let's do a thought experiment. Which is riskier? Is it riskier to put 0% down or to put 10% down? And why? This is the discussion part of class. What's riskier? Just call it out. Zero. It's riskier to put 0% down. It's, it's, it's less risky to put 0% down. OK? Why do you think it's less risky to put 0% down? Less skin, in the game. less skin in the game. So if you put no money in the deal, you don't have any money to lose. Interesting perspective, right? I think a lot of people would be surprised to hear that. They'd be like, well, you put more down, Maybe you have more cash flow, so it's probably less risky to have 10% down from that argument, right? And, and if property values went down, having a 10% cushion before you're a negative, that's interesting.
0: But on the flip side of that and the previous kind of resilient slide on leverage, even though I agree with you, the hard part about me thinking about that is other stocks or real estate, that's true on paper, but only if you sell. So, if you've got enough portfolio to withstand the tide, it doesn't matter because you're not going to sell at every level.
1: So, what you just went to is this idea of paper losses. If you don't really, if property prices go down but you don't sell, you don't really have a loss until you sell. You don't have a realized loss until you sell. And so, you're arguing it doesn't really matter, right? You don't have a loss in either case unless you have to sell the property. Okay, so that makes it sort of even on those. What else? Which one's more risky, which one's less risky? What do you think? It depends, on what? On your cash position. On your cash position, okay. So if you have a lot of cash, then which one's less risky? Then I'd probably go zero percent down because your ROI would be higher. Okay, so you, you might have an infinite return on investment. Right. In theory at least, I mean really you should have, you should be calculating your return including how much you need to keep in reserves. I mean we kind of teach that in deal analysis class, but ignoring that for a second, if you have a zero percent invested in the deal, and you make money on that, then you have an infinite return, right? Yep. So you would think that it's less risky for you to have zero percent down in that case. Yeah, if you can support the, the rents, yeah. So you're, you're assuming you're having to pay for negative cash flow. Well,
0: there's that risk.
1: There is a risk, right. So is it more risky to have put zero percent down or 10 percent down? What do you think?
0: It's a personal decision.
1: <laughs> it's a personal decision, yeah?
0: Are you paying, are you paying, are you deferring your down payment, but you have that down payment, you could put that money someplace else, invest it differently, while someone else maybe
1: pays your down payment, or not, I mean, yeah. Yeah, so I, I wonder if you're getting to this idea that if you put 0% down, you probably have more in reserves because you didn't have to put money down. I wonder if you're getting to that. Well, Here are my thoughts on it. Um, If you do 0% down, you have nothing in the deal, you have nothing to lose. So there's an argument to be made that if you put nothing into the deal, you have nothing to lose, it's arguably less risky in that way. However, your credit is at risk. If something happens and you have to sell and you have to give the property up for foreclosure or um, you have to sell at a loss and you don't have money to make up the difference and you have to do a short sale or something like that, your credit's at risk. And maybe even more so if you put 0% down than if you put 10% down. Because the chance of you being underwater with 0% down is probably greater, right? You know, property values go down 5%. If you had put 10% down, you probably wouldn't be as likely to be underwater, although you have some sales costs and stuff in there which we're gonna ignore for a second. But if you do the 0% down, you're probably still underwater even with a 5% decrease in price, okay? What about prices rising? So you tend to have appreciation. You tend to pay off some debt on the property you tend to have tax benefits, and you tend to have cash flow. So you might have this infinite return on investment with 0% down. It's not really a measure of risk, though. It's just kind of like a, a better return. You're still getting these benefits but you had nothing in the deal though you know you're, you're benefiting from having prices go up at least in theory uh paying off some of the debt as long as you're making your mortgage payment getting tax benefits as long as you're able to depreciate the property and then getting cash flow on the property if there is any maybe there's negative cash flow but you would have an infinite return on your investment ignoring of course that you should have your return calculated on your reserves as well and here is i think it's what rachel was saying you have more reserves if you didn't have to put as much down. If you only had to put 0% down, maybe you have more in reserves, and having more in reserves probably makes that less risky. So I don't know, it's kind of an interesting thought. What about the other side, 10% down? Well, property values go down, 10%, you could lose 100% of your money. You know, As sort of what Austin suggested before, you don't have a loss until you actually have to sell. You have this sort of paper loss. And the longer you hold that property, In the overwhelming majority of the cases, real estate tends to be pretty forgiving over time. Even if property values go down the next five years, you push it out 30 years, property values are probably gonna be up from there, right? Your credit is still at risk, so you still have that risk. Maybe it's a little bit less at risk because you still have that cushion. Of course, prices do rise in a lot of cases. You still pay off debt to have tax benefits and cash flow, but you're maybe more likely to have a little bit of positive cash flow in that case. And maybe that makes it a little less risky. But you have less debt paid off, so your overall return is probably a little less because if you put 10% down, your debt pay down is a little bit lower when you put money down than if you have 0% down. And finally, you have a little bit lower overall return on investment. So which one is less risky? I don't know. I think part of it's how you measure it and your situation. And you have less reserves, which we talked about. Any questions on this? It's kind of an interesting thought experiment, right? Like, Which one's less risky?
0: I think part of that uh, for us analyzing, too, is your own incomes. How quickly can you save to get 10 or 20% down in your market? Because if you're spending six months doing that, it might not be a big deal. It takes you two to four years. You're going backwards fast.
1: So Austin's almost suggesting that how long it would take you to save up that 10% might be another factor in which one's riskier. If you can quickly save up that 10%, it's probably less risky for you, I think is what he's suggesting. If it would take you a really long time, that's probably a bigger risk. Your ability to replenish losses you have, I think is another way you're thinking about that. That's interesting, yeah. Any questions on this? Good little thought experiment. Okay. Measuring risk in real estate investments which is largely what we're getting at, right? Aren't we sort of getting at this kind of rent resiliency and price resiliency? Aren't we sort of talking about a way to measure risk? So what are the different ways we can measure risk in real estate investments? Well, number one is probably one of the most common ways because your lender typically uses it to determine how risky you are for being able to qualify for a loan. It's called debt to income. Debt to income measures how much debt you have compared to how much income you're making, including rental properties. It's often used by lenders to qualify you for loans. So if you ever heard, you know, DTI, you know, what's your ratio for DTI or how much debt to income do you have? It's what lenders use to determine how risky you are to loan money to. So it is definitely a way to measure risk when you're investing in real estate. Probably one of the most common ones. Another one though, and also used by lender, is your debt service coverage ratio, often abbreviated DSCR. That measures how much income you have from your property Compared to your expenses on the property. It's a ratio of your income on the properties to your expenses. And a lot of lenders want to see you know, 1.25 or something like that. They want to make sure that your the income you have in your property can more than cover your expenses. Okay? That's another way that we measure risk. Here's, a, here's one you may not have heard of. It's debt to net worth. How much debt do you have? If you add up all your mortgages and any other debts you might have, you know, car loans, student loans you know, anything like that, credit card loans, how much debt you have compared to what your overall net worth is? And when we use net worth here, we're also talking about any equity you have in properties, how much cash you have in the bank, how much stock, money you have invested in stocks, how much Bitcoin you have, how much Dogecoin you have, all those things, right? So it's your overall net worth, your ratio of your debt to your net worth, okay? But if you think about it, debt to net worth Certain types of net worth are more liquid than others. It's hard to get at equity. What's up? I thought
0: your net worth already
1: had debt subtracted. It does. <laughs> so I'm confused by it. It does, but your, ratio, rate, but your ratio, I mean, the I ratio of how much debt you still have to your net worth is a measure of how risky it is. But your net worth, in this case, you've subtracted your debt. Already. Yes. Okay, got it. Yes, yes, yes. That's okay. a great question. Rachel asks So your, your net worth typically has all of your assets minus what all of your debts are. Uh, on your assets. And so you find out what your overall your like net is after all of your debts on your property. And yes, when we do this calculation, we're saying how much debt you have now divided by what your net worth is. Yep. Yeah. And think about it this way. Let's use a really basic example. Let's say you're a Bill Gates type of guy and you, you have a million dollars and you owe $10,000. So now you have $10,000 in debt over a million dollar net worth. That's a relatively low debt to net worth. But let's say, as another example, you're an investor in this room and you owe $3 million on all of your mortgages, but you have a million dollars in net worth. Yeah. Now that's much higher debt to net worth. So who's riskier in that case? Right? I think the person who has $3 million in debt and only a million dollars in net worth as an extreme example. Okay, so I was getting to this point though. So, when you think about your net worth, what does your net worth consist of? It consists of equity in your properties, your account balances, any type of investments you have, any cash you have, you know, things like that. But some of that is not easily accessible. And if poop really hit the fan, you might not be able to quickly get at equity in your properties, especially if property values are declining and you're really trying to you're trying to like pull money out for some reason to save yourself from some type of decline or something like that it may be really hard to get at your equity so another measure of risk which is slightly different than this one is your debt load compared to your liquidity so i call that debt to liquidity or debt to account balance if you're actually in the software doing these calculations and your debt to account balance says how much debt do i have compared to just my account balances, just the money I have in my bank account, just the amount of money I have in stocks, it specifically excludes, does not include equity in properties. Because equity in properties is illiquid. It's hard to get at, especially that top 25% of equity, right? It's really hard to do a a cash out refinance above 75% loan to value. So that equity, in order for you to get at it, you need to sell the property. if you sell the property there are probably going to be expenses you're probably going to have sales commissions probably have some closing costs probably have some depreciation recapture if it's been a rental and you probably have capital gains so once you pay all those in order to get at it maybe you don't even have what you thought you had so this idea of debt compared to your liquid net worth is another way to measure risk and in fact i think it's a better way to measure risk because it sort of shows you know how able you are to handle Issues with your properties, liquidity-wise. Does that make sense? You're smiling like this is... Debt to liquid net worth? Yeah, yeah it's, it's another measure of risk, yeah, yeah. Okay, so so far we've covered debt to income, commonly used by lenders. Debt service coverage ratio, another one used by lenders a lot. Debt to net worth, which I don't think many lenders use, but I think it's a really good metric. And debt to liquidity, or debt to account balances. What about reserves? Isn't reserves another measure of risk? If you only have one month of reserves on your personal expenses, all the rental properties you own, don't you think that that's more risky than someone who has six months or a year's worth of reserves saved up somewhere? So this just shows you another way to measure risk. Because if you you stop and you say, okay, my personal expenses to live on are, whatever, $10,000 a month. If you have $60,000 in your bank account, you have six months of reserves for your personal expenses. If all of your properties with principal, interest, taxes, insurance, maintenance, vacancy, property management, all those things in there is $2,000 per property. And you have, so if you had uh, $12,000 in the account and you had one property, you'd have six months of reserves in that property. Well, that's pretty good. What if you had 10 properties? Now you need $120,000 in reserves to have six months of reserves for all your properties. Plus the extra, $60,000 for your own personal living expenses. Now you need $180,000 of reserves in order to have six months of reserves. Okay? So that's another way to measure risk is how many months of reserves you have. And then in addition to these, there are two other ones we're covering tonight. Rent resiliency, which is how much your rent can drop before you have negative cash flow, and price resiliency, which is how much your your price of your properties can drop before you have negative equity. So these, I think are my first pass attempt at what the different ways of measuring risk in real estate investments are. And there's probably, I was talking to Nick before class, Nick and Austin, I was telling them, there's probably at least a whole class on just this slide. Like going into details about what these are, how you measure them. And there's some really interesting relationships, which I'm probably not gonna get into much tonight, but like having a whole bunch of reserves can make up for, being weak in another area. If you, have, uh, if you have really low rent resiliency, maybe I do cover this in another slide, but if you have really low rent resiliency, where if, if, prices, if rents decline by the smallest amount, you're gonna have negative cash flow, but you tell me you have 10 years worth of reserves, I'm less concerned, right? If you tell me, look, I got 15% rent resiliency, but I only have one month of reserves, I'm nervous for you, because these interact. Does this make sense? Okay. All right, so how much riskier is it? Rent resiliency and price resiliency give you one way to measure how much riskier it is when comparing two different strategies. So you can be, these can be talking about completely different strategies. For example, I'm going to Nomad versus I'm gonna do um, non-owner occupant 25% down investments, or I'm gonna do Nomad versus uh, short-term rentals or I'm gonna do um, house hacking versus fix and flips or whatever your strategy is, Uh, although fix and flips really wouldn't have rent resiliency, Um, but you could see, you could use them to measure two different strategies completely, or you can use it to measure what is riskier, should I put 10% down, should I put 20% down, should I put 25% down? And you know, earlier we were talking, Ben, about this idea of nomading and how much you put down, if you think about this, this is sort of what we're talking about. If you put less down when you're nomading, as is a really simple version of this conversation that we should have in detail, but if you put, um, you know, you put lo- lower down, like five percent down, and you have a, a much poorer, much more riskier rent resiliency, where you're likely to have negative cash flow or really low resiliency in case rents change, um, but you have now an extra fifteen percent of the down payment in reserves. Well, those sort of like counteract. And would I rather see you have? negative $50 a month in cash flow, but have $45,000 more in reserves? Yes, I would. Versus you saying I'm gonna put $45,000 more in a property and now I'm gonna have $100 a month in cash flow? I don't know. I mean, I'd almost rather see you have $45,000 in reserves. Right? It's kind of an interesting way to think about it. And you gotta run your own numbers to see what it plays out for you. But that's like one of the discussions I think we should have about this idea of put more down and have positive cash flow put less down but have a much bigger pile of reserves. So we have to think about that. Okay, so you could be analyzing, you can use this to measure risk when you're looking at totally different strategies or different amounts of leverage. Should I put 20% down, should I put 25% down, should I put 50% down, should I buy these properties free and clear? Other measures of risk may mitigate the severity or the consequences from the risk associated with another measure. This is what we talked about before about having risky rent resiliency where, it's really low, and if you have a drop in rent, you're gonna have negative cash flow. But being risky there can often be mitigated by having really robust reserves. So if, if you're really sensitive to drops in rent where you're gonna have negative cash flow, but you tell me you've got a million dollars in reserves, I probably don't care, right? Unless you're talking about really big numbers for the negative cash flow. But if you tell me you have very little reserves and you're close, or you, or you tell me, or I'd rather see you say, I got a decent rent resiliency and mediocre to good sort of reserves, sort of like this balance between them. Okay? So, for example, let's look at them for Nomad with 5% down versus 20% investor loans. You're not moving in with the 20% down uh, for someone who has a million dollars to start with. So, we're gonna start with an example here. Someone's got a million dollars to start with, and they're gonna either do Nomad or they're gonna say, I'm not moving into a property. Um, Sequentially, I'm just going to go buy one property to live in, and then I'm going to buy 20% down rentals. Let's take a look at how these compare. Um, And I do have the 20% down investor buy a single owner-occupant property to start with to kind of make it fair. Okay? So let's take a look at what this looks like. Let's start with price resiliency. Okay. I'm going to take my time to go through these charts. So this is a chart showing total price resiliency in dollars. So how much dollar-wise do prices need to decline before I have negative equity? The red line is showing you 20% down non-owner occupant. And remember, price resiliency in dollar is essentially equity. So really, this is a chart of how much equity they have in all their properties. Right? That's what I'm showing you. We started with a million dollars, and we either do the nomad strategy, where you're buying properties with 5% down, moving in, living there for a year, converting the last one to a rental, buying the next one, putting 5% down, and you're repeating this process until you have 10 rentals and one owner-occupant versus someone who is buying one owner-occupant property and immediately putting 20% down to buy 10 rentals as quickly as they can with that million dollars that they have. So in this case, they're able to buy the 10 rentals really, really fast in like 10 months. Okay? So you'll see, as far as how much equity they have in their properties, when they do 20% down, they're buying these properties really, really fast, and it's growing very quickly at the beginning. Then over time, you just have this normal appreciation curve, then you have properties paid off, and the appreciation curve kind of, uh, kind of stalls out a little bit, versus someone who does Nomad, where you're only buying one property a year, and it's kind of growing very, very slowly, and eventually you get to the point where you stop buying properties, and it just grows with appreciation from there, and so you start paying off the properties later on. Eventually, they get to the same spot, though where they have the same amount of equity in the properties. They have basically 11 free and clear properties. One they're living in and 10 rentals. One of them got there by nomading, the other one got there by buying 20% down. Does that make sense everybody? Okay, so putting 20% down gives you more equity. Duh, right, I mean this is sort of like master the obvious stuff. You put 20% down versus 5% down, you're gonna have more equity, which is why 20% down is above the other curve. So it's more resilient to declines in prices. Might be easier to see this, though, per property, because you're like, you know, these numbers don't make any sense to me. It's like hard to tell what's going on. But what if we looked at it on a per property basis? Well, that's what the average price resiliency dollar is. We now look at the amount of price resiliency we have per property. And so this gives you an idea of how much equity you have on the average property that you have there. Same idea, though. 20% down, non-owner occupant, is kind of more than what you do with 5% down. Interesting thing, though, with Nomad, you live in the property for a year, and my definition for average price resiliency dollar, I exclude your owner-occupant home. I basically only look at it for investment properties. There's a weird exception when we look at all individual properties, but for the most part, I'm ignoring this one. So you'll notice Nomad is zero until basically month 13, when we convert that to a rental, and so then it pops up, and you have a certain amount of dollars, you know, 5% plus whatever appreciation was, on that particular property. And then each one that you buy kind of increases until you get to the time where you're stopping buying and then it just kind of continues up per property. And this gives you a feeling for how much it is. But it's still hard to gauge because this is future dollars, right? You have equity growing, but your property values are also growing too. So it's hard to tell like what's happening because these numbers don't make a lot of sense to us when we think about future dollars. Like what is having $500,000 per property in equity mean, you know, about 20 years in the future? It's hard to fathom. It's hard to really relate to that. Okay. So if you do this and we adjust for inflation, if we say, look, I'm going to adjust back to inflation so that the property is always worth $350,000 or so in today's dollars. Now we can kind of get a feel for what's happening. This is showing you average price resiliency dollar, but now it's adjusted so that these numbers make sense to us because we're talking about adjusting back into today's dollars. So, you know, this has when the nomad kind of pops up there, we have, I don't know, whatever that is you know, about $40,000 or so, maybe a little bit more, and each one you buy kind of increases until you get to the point where after you're stopped buying around year 10 or so, you got about $100,000 on average across all the properties that you bought over time uh, uh, for all the Nomad ones. But the ones where you put 20% down, it's probably $180,000 on average. Okay? So you can just kind of see how this works. And eventually, you get to the point where you have 100% of equity. So the property values are worth about 350, you have about $350,000 worth of price resiliency. The property value can drop the full value of the property before you have negative equity because you don't have a loan. Does that make sense? And these are slower to get there because you delayed buying properties. It takes you longer to get to the point where, on average, all of your properties are paid off because they staggered a year out. And these were only staggered by like nine months or ten months in order to get all ten bought. Does that make sense, everybody? Okay. So these are in inflation adjusted dollars helps you think about how much property values might need to go down with the properties you understand it now, not what it will be worth in the future. You may also see that we're only measuring rentals, that's why no man's at zero. Any questions on this one? But that only assume, Well that also doesn't take into account how much out of pocket you had to put down to get to the same result. 100%. We are not, we are not including how much you had to put down in order to get to how much equity you have. You're right. Because, rent, because uh, rent resiliency, or price resiliency in this case, doesn't include the amount you put in. It's really just, how much can prices drop before I have negative equity?
0: I'm assuming that's, for the math that was used, it was the same interest rate for both?
1: No, they don't use the same interest rate because when you put 5% down on an owner-occupant loan, it's probably a little bit better than you putting 20% down on a non-owner-occupant loan. So I use different interest rates. I actually looked them up. Yeah, so it's, this is interesting because we're going to have a slide later on where I show you which one gets the financial independence faster. And it surprises a lot of people. Because you'd think, I don't know, 20% down it should get there faster or whatever. I mean, you're going to look at it, you're going to see. Yeah. All right, any other questions on this? think I'm about to switch gears. Um, oh, now I'm switching from dollars to percent. So, what percent can prices drop? before I have negative equity. And you can see when you put 20% down on the first property, you basically have 20% that can decline before you have negative equity. When you have the Nomad property, until it becomes a rental at zero, but then as soon as you do this, it's probably closer to like this 8% range. Why is it 8% after a year? Because you put 5% down, and I assume property values are appreciating at three. So now property values can go down by like 8% on this first one before you have it. And each time you buy a new property, it sort of increases so you get to this point. So you could see how resilient you are to declines in value percentage wise, no longer talk about dollars because in, in a lot of ways, don't we want to know percent? Don't we think in terms of percent? We don't, we don't often think, look, you know, we're, we're buying properties. What if they go down $72,000? $72, well, $72,000 of what? You know if we're talking about a million dollar property that's very different than if we're talking about a three hundred thousand dollar property so really don't we want to think in terms of what percentage decline we had on the property value so I think percent makes a lot more sense so you can see here though and then eventually you get to the point where you can have a hundred percent decline in value when your property is free and clear and it, you don't have any negative equity and the nomad one takes longer to do the total and the average look almost identical the charts look almost the same or This is all the properties combined. We could look at each individual property if we wanted to, right? And that would look like a rainbow. So each one of these then becomes its own property. And you can see this is someone nomading. Each year they buy a new property. And then the rents, or this is the price resiliency. The price resiliency kind of goes up over time as they appreciate. And as you pay down a loan a little bit. Okay? Any questions? Is this helpful? All right. Let's switch over now to talk about rent resiliency. So total rent resiliency in dollars. Remember, rent resiliency dollar is what? It's cash flow. So this is really another chart saying this is how much total cash flow you have on all your rental properties. Now, it's still the same scenarios. We started with a million dollars and we either do Nomad or one owner occupant, then 20% down payment, non-owner occupant investment property loans. We're putting 20% down, gives you more cash flow. That makes sense, right? You put 20% down the property, you'd expect probably a little bit better cash flow. Although the interest rate's better on 5% down, no man. Also, the 20% down payment properties are paid off faster. Why? Why are the 20% down payment properties paid off faster? But they're all 30 year loans we purchased them earlier. Yes. So they're all 30 year loans. So the loan always pays off in 30 years. Just when you started the loans matters. So when we actually bought the properties, the first, we all buy an owner occupant property month one, no matter what. But then the one that's buying rentals also buys a second 20% down property in month one. And then they buy another one in month two, month three, month four, month five, until they get 10. So 10 months in, they now have 11 properties. But the nomad buys a property with 5% down. They have to live there for a year, then they convert it to a rental and they buy the replacement property. So it takes them until month 13 to own two. So you could see the red line is the 20% down non-occupant. This is when all the loans got paid off. And your cash flow went way up. Right? Your rent resiliency went way up because now you don't have loans anymore. But these ones, they take a long time and they're staggered a year apart. So it takes a long time for them to get to the point where they're all paid off. But once they get paid off, they're basically the same, right? Because you basically have the same number of rental properties. There's some funky stuff going on here. With the 20% down non-owner occupant loan, you have a little bit of negative cash flow right at the beginning. But Nomad's even worse. Nomad starts at zero and then by month 13, you have a little bit of negative cash flow and it's worse as you buy more, so it kind of stays there for a little bit, okay? So, yeah, let's go to the next slide. So now this was just regular dollars, so it's kind of hard to tell like what's happening. You're like, okay, what, is, what does it mean to have $50,000 worth of cash flow in year 30? I don't know. So let's take a look at it now if we adjust back to today's dollars. You can see a little bit more about what's happening here, but really you can see what the total cash flow is as if it was cash flow in today's dollars, sort of adjusted back for inflation and you can see eventually they get to the point where it's just under $20,000, like $19,000 probably or so, um, in cash flow per month on all 10 rentals, net. So this inflation adjusted dollars helps you think about how much total rents on all properties might need to go down with the property as you understand it now, not what rents will be worth in the future. Okay. Now this is average per property. Before we were talking about the total amount on all 10 rentals. Now we're saying how much, how resilient are we on individual property? It shows you, you know, about here in year 10 or so, you're probably about, I don't know, $500 or $600 per property in positive cash flow on the 20% down, somewhere in that ballpark. And you can kind of get a gauge for that. And then here, later on, you can see kind of what it is per property. So, you know, this is in inflated inflated dollars, but it's probably like $6,000 or so when the properties are all paid off. Okay, Or we could adjust for inflation, and we could see the numbers now. Each property's got about, I don't know, $1,800 or so per month in cash flow net after everything's paid off. Cool? Any questions on this? All right, now we're going to switch to percent. So what percent can rents decline before we have negative cash flow? Well, with both of them, we're negative up front, because right, so we're basically underwater. We have negative cash flow on the properties. The 20% down one becomes positive sooner. The Nomad one takes a little longer before it becomes positive. But you can see that over time, though, you know, it gets to the point where about 10 years in, 20% down is you know, about 18% resilient. You can have an 18% drop in rents before you have negative cash flow. And Nomad is probably, I don't know what that is, eight, somewhere around there. And then this is if you looked at Nomad for the individual properties. You can look at each one individually. Okay? All right. So now I'm gonna show you, same situation, million dollars. Should you put 5% down as a Nomad? Should you put 20% down non-owner occupant like we just talked about? Should you put 25% down? Or should you put 100% down and buy the properties free and clear? I had 50% but I didn't include it because it didn't really show anything more. Okay, but I did have it, in case you are wondering. Alright, so let's talk about this idea. What's the chance you might see prices or rents go down 1%? What's the chance that home prices can go down 1%? Or rents can go down 1%? Pretty good, right? Like the chances of seeing rents decline by 1%, on any given property or or property prices to go down by 1% in any given year, it's pretty high. Wouldn't you agree with that? What are the chances that they could go down 10%? You think it's high? Is it as high as 1%? Yeah, it's much more likely for you to be able to see property prices or rents go down 1% than it would be for them to go down 10%. What about the chances it could go down 25%? Property prices, you have a $400,000 property, now it's worth $300,000. What are the chances that could happen? Could it happen? Yeah, it could happen. Is it more likely that something like that would happen, or is it more likely you'll see a 1% decline? 1%, right? I mean, this is obvious, I'm not trying to trick you. What about a 100% decline? Rents go to zero, property prices go to zero. Could that happen? Maybe. Is it likely? Probably not. So would you agree that we're much more likely to see a 1% decline than a 50% decline? Not not a trick question, seems really obvious, right? Therefore, having a rent resiliency of 20%, where rents can decline by 20% before you have negative cash flow, is much less risky than having a rent resiliency of 10%, where rents can go down by 10% before we have negative cash flow, because we're much less likely to see a 20% drop than a 10% drop in rents. Because the chance of it going down 20% is much more unlikely than having a 20% rent resiliency, it's probably not two times better, it's probably more than two times better. Does that make sense? There's there's a point where, look, you really wanna have a 1% rent resiliency or better. You really wanna have a 2% one. But once you get up to like 30%, how much better is 35 than 30, right? I don't, know if it's, I don't know if it's like a lot, because the chance of it getting to 30% decline is much lower. Like the small numbers, it's much more important. It's important to get to a certain number, whatever it is, 5%, 10%, whatever you think is reasonable for perhaps a price decline or a rent decline. But once you get up much, much higher, the difference between those higher numbers, because it's not likely to get there, It's not as big of a deal. Is that a Rubicon then? No, I don't think think of this as Rubicons. Rubicons are sort of like uh, things you cross over, you get to where you never go back from. you know, acquiring your first rental property. Or getting to the point where you have $100 a month coming in cash flow. Or the point where you have your mortgage paid for by your rental properties. Yeah, things like that. Those are what I think consider Rubicons. Yeah, yeah, question? Uh That's a really good question. I don't remember, but I do remember seeing rents decline in like 2008, 2009, when you had a whole bunch of people that couldn't or were, un- were unable or unwilling to sell their properties at a loss. You know, They either couldn't sell their properties or they were unwilling to sell it at a loss, and they decided to become unwanted landlords, You know, reluctant landlords where they're renting their property out. And then you have a surplus of rentals on the market and not as much demand, and so when you have a lot of demand and a lot of inventory, you know, people drop rents in order to get their properties rented, and so you have declines in rents. And I think that happens, it's sort of market dependent, but like our local market, Fort Collins specifically, was uh, much more resilient to rent declines than other markets in other parts of the country. So I think part of it is market dependent, and I probably could look at some charts to try to get a feel for that. There probably is some data um, that I'll try to find, and we can look that up, but, um, I. I don't think it's unreasonable to be prepared for a 10% decline. Especially, you know, I think about it this way too. Over the last X years, we've seen a massive run-up in prices, a massive run-up in rates, in in, in in like uh, rental rates or rents. Do you think it's unreasonable to give some of that back? When you think of it that way, right? Like, it was only two years ago that rents were, whatever it $2,000 a month. Now they're 25. Do you think it's unreasonable to go from 25 to 23? and you're still $300 more than you were you know, a couple years ago? I don't think that's unreasonable. And so part of it is, what's that? depends on what you bought the house for. The house. <laughs> well, but it's, but it's unreasonable to think that it could go back there. Right. It's like sort of proximity bias, right? Some type of recency bias, I think is what it's called. I think
0: partly, I mean, like I get what you're saying logically, but with that being said, I think part of that's also interest rates and new bonds. Yes. that every renter is going to have to hit, if they're going to go towards a new house, then the then rates have to go up because they're going to trail that. They're not going to go, to, I'm not going to rent for 2300 but I know you're going to buy for
1: 3000 Yeah, so what Austin is saying um, is, I think he's sort of pegging, rents have to be related in some form or another to what your equivalent mortgage payment will be. And that has not always been true. We've seen transitions in markets where at one point they were uh, they a parity. You know, it was $2,000 to buy the property with a reasonable down payment compared to about $2,000 a month in rent. And we saw some type of parity with that. But then over time, markets changed where the price to buy a house went up a lot and rents did not creep up quite as fast as those things. And so that can change in a marketplace over time. It's not universally true that always rents are there. Now what's, what's an interesting kind of way to think about this is you could force that to be true by doing like a rent to own or lease option where you tell people, look, you know, the, the mortgage payment, if you go buy this property is $3,000 a month to use your example, but rents would normally be 2,200, but I'm going to charge you $3,000 a month because if you can't afford a $3,000 a month payment, you can't buy this house. You're never going to be able to actually buy it from me. And if you can't do that, then you know, why am I putting you in here? And so you can almost make a justification for rents that look like mortgage payments when you're selling on the lease option. Does that make sense? So yeah, that's an interesting point though. Okay. Any other questions? I, I think there's some other stuff on another slide, but I think we're done, done with this one. We good? Cool. So evaluating risk continuing. So what's the chance price or rent will go down on a single property? You know, you have a rogue property in a part of town that goes bad, or you know, it's not as hot anymore. So what are the chances that it could go down on a single property? Pretty good, right? I think you can see that happening. What's the chance it would be two properties in the same market? Well, probably not as high as a single property, but probably greater than some other things that could happen. What about on 10 properties in the same market? Well, if the whole market goes bad, I think that could totally happen, right? What about two properties in different markets? What's the chance of that happening? I think it could happen, but it's a different probability than having all of your eggs in one basket in one market, or on one street, or in one neighborhood, right? (laughs) <laughs> there's a couple of people in the room that I'm looking at, okay? I mean, it's just, it, it's, I'm not saying it's bad, I'm just saying that there's an increased probability, so I think you need to account for that when you think about your rent resiliency and your price resiliency, that you know, you've, you've increased your risk by doing that. What about 10 properties in 10 different markets? Right? A little bit less probability, but it can still happen. So diversification in some form or another, whether that's geographic, Investing in different markets, property type—you know, buying some duplexes, buying some apartments, buying some single-family homes, you know, buying some condos, buying some townhomes—you know, all those different types of properties that you can do, or price points—you know, buying some entry-level rental properties versus buying some luxury properties, buying some mid-range sort of properties, or the strategy you're using—doing short-term rentals, I'm doing house hacking, I'm doing um, you know, fix and flip, or all these different examples. So there's some diversification you can do across all those different things. Excuse me, geographic, property type, price point, strategy. There's more resilience required, suggested, I don't know how to word that, if you're not diversifying, right? I think you'd be prudent to have a more resilient portfolio to increase your threshold for what you want to have in terms of resilience if you're not diversifying in other ways. But if you're more diversified, you probably could get away, not that you should. And there's arguments against this, This there's arguments of investing only in the one market that you think is really going to do well and not investing in these other markets just to have diversification where you have a higher risk of those going down, right? I think there's a counter argument to this. But I think overall it's more prudent to be higher, higher resilience if you're less diversified. If you're doing the same strategy with the same house in the same neighborhood, you probably should be a little bit more focused on being more resilient with your stuff than if you're Spread out a little bit, right? I, I, this is obvious. <laughs> I wasn't talking specifically no. to you, but I, it felt like that, right? Yeah. Okay. It wasn't intentional. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to be helpful. I'm trying to be helpful. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So average price resiliency in percent. So what percent can property prices go down uh, before they have negative cash flow for those four strategies? For the hundred percent down, you bought the property free and clear. You could have the property value go down 100% and you would not be underwater because you don't have a mortgage. So that one's easy. That one just goes 100% all the way across the whole time.
0: Wouldn't you be negative past 75 if you
1: think this is about 25% taxes and insurance? No, this is uh, uh, property values. Okay. This is not rents. When we do the rent one, you'll see there is a threshold. But for property values, you have a $400,000 property, you don't own anything on it, it can go down 400K, you can go down 100% before you're negative. And there's an interesting point you bring up, which I have a slide at the end. I think there's a variation on this class, or at least a variation on some of the terms, where we do take into account things like sales costs and capital gains and depreciation recapture and stuff like that. There's a version where we take into account those transaction costs for equity. But this one is simple, right? This one is just pure up equity. Okay? So 100% that one's easy. 100% all the way across. Super, super easy on that one. The next one we'll do, we'll do Nomad. Nomad, you start at zero. Because you basically are not counting the thing that's not a rental by the time you get to year one you convert it to a rental it pops up here and this is the this is the average per property and so it shows you you're about eight percent or so and then each time you buy a property kind of comes down drops down does this until eventually it kind of tapers off until you get to the point where all the properties are paid off and you're doing that that's that's what nomad is 20 percent, 25 percent down that's just a difference in down payment amount and so the curves are very similar in both cases you're buying properties as quickly as you can I will tell you that with the 20% down, you can get all 10 properties, all 10 rental properties. With the 25% down, you get really close and I think you need to buy one a year or two later. Okay. Um, So you have a small delay there, but you're acquiring these properties and you're more resilient with 25% down. This makes more sense, right? You put more down, you're more resilient to a price drop when you do that. And then they eventually taper to the point where they get to be the same uh, when the properties are all paid off. About About 30 years in the future from when you started maybe minus a year, plus a year, okay? Any questions on this? Pretty straightforward? Okay. Now this is average rent resiliency in dollars for the three strategies. So when you buy properties free and clear, you have really high cash flow, but you have fewer properties. You only had a million dollars to start with, You can't buy 10. You can only buy three and change. So three, until you save up for the next one. So then your kind of rent, average rent resiliency dollars kind of up here until eventually you catch up with everyone else. But here, though, you've got um, 25% down, 20% down, and Nomad. Nomad starts at zero, then it has negative cash flow. The 20% down one has some negative cash flow. The 25% down one has positive cash flow from the beginning. And the curves are very, very similar. The ones where you put 20 and 25% down, the properties get paid off. And so your cash flow really improves here. And they go up here, and then the Nomad one takes a little while to pay off because you're doing them a year at a time. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's rent resiliency dollar. Now this is that snapshot I talked about. I basically said let's look at some arbitrary point in time. I picked five years in the future, and I said what does this look like? What is the average rent resiliency in dollars at five years in the future for this thing? And so for the 100% down, 191965. And this is an inflation adjusted dollar, so it's back in today's dollars. So you have rents drop by $1,919.65 and not have negative cash flow with the free and clear properties. With 20% down, you, you can only have rents drop $116.05 before you're negative. With 25% down, it could drop $309.54 per property before you're negative. And with Nomad, $14.42. So just a snapshot in time, five years in the future, average property, this is per property, right? Average rent resiliency dollar. You either drop almost $1,900 and change, $115 and change, $310 and change, or $15. Not $1,500, just $15. That's Nomad. So which one of these is riskiest? It's obvious, right? But look at the difference. Can we see rents drop by $116? Probably, probably. So uh, just order of magnitude, you can see that these are not that far off. OK, so now this is percent for rents. So as you were discussing, Austin, there's taxes and insurance and stuff, so it's not a hundred percent, because you have property taxes, insurance and those things on the property. So really, it's about 80 something percent here. So we say about 18% or so is actually taxes and insurance. For the free and clear property, that's where it is. That's how much rents can drop before you be negative. Um, with the 25% down, they could drop you know, a little bit here, whatever that is, 3%, 4%. But it increases over time until they get paid off and it goes up there. This is that extra property being paid off, I think. And then with the 20% down, you start off with negative cash flow, which I'll show you this here in a second. And then by the time you get to month, whatever this is, 40 year, four years in or so, then it gets to become positive and then it gets up here when the properties get paid off, they all bump up there. Then here's Nomad, it's negative for a while, finally becomes positive, and then it kind of follows a similar curve, not exactly the same, but very similar, and then once you start paying off properties here, they get paid off. Does everyone see that? So Nomad and 20% down both have negative cash flow with professional property management in this example. That's what the assumptions were. And so here's the cash flow power meter. It shows you the, the black line is where rent is. So it shows you for the rent that they're getting, this light green area shows that they would have positive cash flow if they were managing the property themselves. If it were in this dark green area, it would be positive cash flow if they had a professional property manager, which in this case they don't, so it's slightly negative, but it's positive if they were to manage it themselves. In the yellow area, it means that it would be positive cash flow if they were managing it themselves and they uh, um, took into account cash flow from depreciation, the tax benefits of owning the property. Then the red area is you're still, covering some of the debt pay down, but it's negative. And then here is you're not even covering debt pay down. So depending on where the black line is, it shows you how much cash flow you have and whether it's cash flow with property management, cash flow you managing yourself, cash flow with cash flow from depreciation, or I'm not even covering, I wouldn't be positive even if I had an interest only loan is another way of saying this, okay? Any questions on this? And if you're just like cash flow parameter, what is all that stuff? There's a class on that too. And I probably need to do a new one. But that's we look at cash flow parameters to see very visually where cash flow is on any particular property. It's a really easy way to see where you are. Any questions? All right, so now this is the same chart we had before, except we're doing percentages. So this is year five, month 60. Rents can drop 83% if you have a free and clear before you have negative cash flow. Rents could drop 5% with 20% down. Can rents drop 5%? Absolutely, that's like a realistic number for you see rents decline, right? You know, 5% decrease in rents. Uh, for the 25% down, they can drop 13.47. I don't know, that's, that'd be a harder one to do. I mean, it definitely could happen, but it's harder than 5%, right? Wouldn't you agree? And the Nomad one, 0.63. So what's the chance that rents could decline 0.63%? Really high. What's the chance rents could decline 5%? I'd say reasonably high. What's the chance that they can decline 13.47? Moderate, I mean, not, it's not unheard of, but it's not high, right? Probably not high. And what's the chance it could decline 83.12%? Pretty low, pretty low. If so you can get a feel for how resilient this strategy is here. And this is, this is probably a different strategy, this is just different down payment amounts to give you a feel. Okay, any questions on this? It's often counterintuitive. Just because a real estate investing strategy is more or less leveraged or more or less risky doesn't always mean it will perform better or worse than another strategy toward achieving financial independence specifically. So just because, hey, this is more risky, it's got to get me to financial independence faster, Uh uh-uh. Not true. I'll show you that in a second. For example, putting 100% down to buy up to 10 rentals might seem like the least risky strategy, from a number of risk measures, right? I mean, put 100% down, and putting 5% down to Nomad might, at first blush, seem the most risky. That doesn't tell you which one achieves financial independence first, or which one will ultimately give you the highest standard of living, which we'll talk about. And this is a case for doing Monte Carlo or alternative universe modeling, where we actually see how risky is this? Like, what happens if rents don't go up always? Because when you do Nomad and you have, like, prices always going up and rents going always up, Nomad looks amazing, right? You start having some years where prices don't go up or rents sort of go down some years or something like that. Looks less, it still looks amazing, but there's years where it's not always pretty, right? You're, like, you're, you're actually still have negative cash flow for longer and it takes you longer to save up and sometimes you have to stay in properties longer. So there's stuff that happens, okay? All right, so... This is the, the numbers for those. So the Nomad one, you're financially independent. If you start with a million dollars and you're trying to buy 10 Nomad properties, actually it's 11 because you live in the last one, It takes you 8.5 years to be financially independent where you, I think you're making $10,000 a month in income. So 8.58 years in order to make $10,000 a month in passive income. Uh, if you put 25% down, 7.58 years. So that's faster to put 25% down. Put 20% down, 9.58 years. It is slower for you to put 20% down than it is for you to do NOMAD. It is slower for you to put 20% down than it is for you to do NOMAD to achieve financial independence. And then it takes you 4.08 years in order to be financially independent, buying the properties free and clear. Starting with a million dollars, you buy a lot fewer properties. So the most risky, arguably, NOMAD, 8.58 years, the least risky, arguably, 100% 100% down, free and clear properties, 4.08. It's sort of in between. Basically, the less you put down, the longer it takes. OK? Except for Nomad. Kind of odd.
0: What you're saying, I just need to impair the Yeah, I was going to say, it just really depends on your well. ability to do. Well, and I think that's the hard part for 25% down. It's normal historic markets when it's up only appreciating 3% a year. And you can say that relatively fast. Over the last few years, if I was losing ground at 10 or 15% appreciation each year, then I would not be buying.
1: You're talking about for Nomad? Right. Yeah, so what Austin just said is, you know, in years where you've got slow, steady appreciation of 3% a year, Nomad makes a lot of sense. But if you're Nomading and property values are going up really, really fast at 15%, then it could slow you down. Yes and no. Any properties that you own, you're benefiting from that. So it depends on where you are in your cycle. If you're like just about to start, and you're seeing properties going up 15%. Yeah, it's harder because it's the, the, the goal is moving away from you all the time. But if you have the money to do down payments, there's other options. If you don't and you're saving up anyway, you just do what you can. You kind of use the market that you have. But any properties that you bought, you do benefit from those. You, have, you, know, you bought three properties and now you're doing your fourth one. Great. The three properties you own are went up 15% a year. That's awesome. So it's just kind of a weird situation with that. And I think Nick in the back said something like, yeah, oh, now I just got to inherit a million dollars. And this was sort of like a, a setup as an example to show you how rent resiliency impacts different choices if you're starting in one particular position. I've got a couple other examples from the previous classes we did where I show you how those look at for price resiliency and rent resiliency and what they would look like. So you'll see those. Which Those ones, they were basically right out of college earning whatever it was. a year or something between the two of them, right? So you'll see what those look like, okay? Any questions? All right, cool. So this is their standard of living. Um, It shows them what percentage of that $10,000 a month goal they're earning, adjusted for inflation. And so you can see they all achieve it pretty low here, but look what's interesting about this is, Nomad eventually, it doesn't happen at the beginning, but Nomad eventually has the highest standard of living. They're earning the most amount of money later on. And part of that is them paying off properties. This is when they pay off their owner-occupant property. These over here paid off their owner-occupant properties here. Basically, month 360s. They all bought it at the beginning. Okay? So the one where you did 100% down, you don't have the 10 properties right away. It takes you a while to acquire them, and so it takes a long time to do that. The ones where you're doing and 25% down, those are very similar curves. Okay? So you have the highest standard of living with Nomad too, which also is probably counterintuitive to a lot of folks. Okay, This is just how, when you buy the properties, in case somebody wanted to ask me about it. The Nomad one, you bought one in year one, you waited a year, you bought another one, but waited a year, bought another, one, bought another one, bought another one, bought another one, until eventually you get 11 properties. One you live in and 10 rentals. For the the 100% down, you could buy three up front, it takes you a little while to save up for 100% down on the next one. Then you go up to four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. It takes you a long time to buy the 11th property, one that you're living in. And the one you're living in is 5% down. And then 20% and 25% down, the 20% one you're able to buy all 11 right away within the first year. The other one, it takes you a little while to save up for that last 25% down payment. Because a million dollars does not quite get you enough to do 25% down with the property I picked. Okay? All right, I'm gonna run through these pretty quick. So, for those that came to the previous classes or on the podcast, Buy and Hold Real Estate Investing Strategy, this will look really familiar to you, but this is sort of another perspective on that class. Because in that class, the only thing we covered was when they achieved financial independence. We didn't talk about anything else, because I didn't have time. So, we basically went over all this, all the different strategies in buy and hold which i'm not going to go into detail and we looked at how fast they achieve financial independence now i'm going to show you another another view into what's going on and show you what their price resiliency looks like and so these are all the different strategies combined i'm not going to break them out and kind of go into detail just to give you a view of approximately where these are right so prices can decline by the time they start acquiring properties In this 20% range to maybe 40 maybe 50% range and then finally when you stop acquiring properties it just increases over time so that's how they tend to trend for buy and hold and this is for how much what percentage prices can decline before they'd have negative equity okay and then these are all the different rent resiliencies curves for all the different ones again I'm not going to go into any individual one but you could see They're in this sort of like 0 to 20% for a lot of this time, maybe a little bit higher depending on whether they have a lot of extra cash flow like short-term rentals or something like that because that's really what this is measuring. And then it kind of goes up over time where they all get paid off. Okay? And then I picked the arbitrary time frame just to compare them. This is year 20, month 240, just to see what happens. And I wanted to show you. 15% 15% down payments are still relatively risky, even 20 years in. Only a 6.3% rent resiliency or 1.92% rent resiliency, depending on which one of the two 15% down payment options you chose. All the other ones, though, I think are pretty reasonable, right? I mean, we talked about. Do you think rents are able to go down 22%? What about 11%? I mean, that's, that can happen, but it's not crazy close, right? You know, you start getting at that 1.92, that's, that's pretty close before you have negative cash flow. So these are the 15% down options, and then these are all the other buy and hold ones, depending on which one you're looking at. Does that make sense? Just so you can see visually, like approximately where they are in relative sizes. Okay? Any questions? Cool. All right, let's do the same thing for that Nomad real estate investing strategy class. Again, in that class we went over all the different time it took them to be financially independent. We didn't go into any other detail. We didn't talk about net worth. We didn't talk about any risk. We didn't talk about uh, you know, cash flow, or you know, debt service coverage ratio, or debt, debt to income, or anything else. So really we just covered that. Now this is if you do price resiliency. The blue one that's really weird is the lease option one where you're buying properties, then you have to stop buying until you can afford the next one and they you get cashed out. So there's some weird stuff going on with the blue one, just ignore that one. But the rest of them sort of trend in this, I don't know, once you get up to steady state 25 to 50%, and then, of course, as they get paid off, they increase from there. So you could see relative price resiliency in that what I would consider to be a reasonable range. There's nothing kind of abnormal there. And then here's rent resiliency. Again, the blue one is that lease option one, which is kind of wacky. But then here, it builds up, Nomad kind of builds up over time as you acquire properties and you hold them longer, and you add another property, you add another property, and eventually you get good cash flow, but it takes some time to get there, and kind of cash flow increases here until the properties start getting paid off. That's what they look like for rent resiliency percent. Any questions? And for comparison, this is year 20. Do you have a question, Allison?
0: Yeah, for the short-term rental. Yep. Year to, or yes. Year
1: yes. You start your short term rental year. And two. And then, what, Do you remember what kind of like cash flow or additional rent you were projecting for that? Yeah, it's in that presentation, but I don't remember. It wasn't crazy though. I remember at the time thinking it was a pretty reasonable bump. I bumped up expenses on it and I bumped up income on it um, so that the net income was higher, but it wasn't like 2x or anything like that. It wasn't that extreme, By it wasn't even close to 2x. It was a reasonable bump. Um, and you can change those assumptions, right? You can go copy the scenario to your account and just change the model. Yep. So this is month 240, year 20. The same one we did before where we had some of those that were in that you know, 5% or uh, whatever it was, 2%, whatever the numbers were there. And I just wanna show you that the average rent resiliency by year 20 for Nomad, they all look pretty reasonable to me. I mean, there is a 7.761. I'm pretty sure that's the lease option exit one, which is wacky anyway. All the other ones, though, they seem kind of reasonable. I mean, the lowest besides that is 11.9%. Not great, but not horrible. And there's some that are 30%. Right? Doesn't seem unreasonable to me to have the ability to have rents drop by 20% before you have negative cash flow. Seems pretty resilient. Any questions on this? I think this is the last one I'm doing for these. House hacking. Again, this was that uh, house hacking real estate investing strategy class where we covered all the different times it took to be financially independent. I'm not going to go over that again, but then here is the price resiliency for those. Very similar to a lot of the other ones, where between twenty-five percent and a little bit less than fifty percent, prices can decline for the bulk of the time here. And then, of course, when they're paid off, they get a lot better. And then for rent resiliency, you start off with some negative cash flow in some cases, and then you have positive between zero and 25 for rent resiliency for a lot of this period of time, and then you start paying off properties, they get a lot better. And of course, you knew this was coming, year 20, kind of a snapshot. There's some that are kind of funky. You know, whatever this fourth one is, that's what is it, one of the blues. That's probably, uh, probably a 15% down one, honestly. It's probably 15% down payment, this blue, if I had to guess. And then the other one, 5.86, that's like a pink. Yeah, they're all the 15% down ones. So these are all, all these low 5.86 ones are all 15% down, which that's the lowest rent resiliency you have. All the other ones, well, guess five, what's five? That's a green one. Oh, that's probably 15% down too. So all these are 15% down and all the other ones where you put down a reasonable down payment, they're all above 10%, which doesn't seem to be crazy extreme. It's not super resilient, but it's also not an extreme number um, low, right? Any questions on this? Cool. Well, apparently I did one more. Oh, Burr. Burr, again, same thing. Burr real estate investing strategy class. There are three different strategies we did with Burr, which is the buy, rehab, rent, refinance, and the optional repeat process to do those. And it just shows you kind of where these are. Uh, price resiliency, a little bit better because you're buying properties, they've got a little bit of equity in them. So that's a little bit better there. And then uh, rent resiliency, decent. Pretty good current things there. And then this is uh, month 240, year 20. Look pretty strong. 14% is the lowest one for the burst strategies that we ran. 24% was the high. Any questions? Cool. All right, got three more slides left, then we'll take questions. So additional things to consider. I think I mentioned this earlier in the class, but there's, there's, a, there's a concept that I didn't teach, which I probably should teach at some point, you know when I use the term like true cash flow, when I say true cash flow, it includes cash flow from depreciation, like the tax benefits of doing that. Um, or when I say true, true net equity, I mean your net equity after you take into account the expenses on the property, your taxes, know, property, uh, not property taxes, your uh, capital gains taxes, your depreciation recapture tax, um, any closing costs, your share of closing costs, and any real estate sales commissions you have, and that's like your equity after all those expenses. Well, these are, these are kind of variations on that theme. True price resiliency is how much price could decline where you wouldn't have negative negative equity, taking into account refinance or sales costs. So like all the costs we just talked about, this would be a calculation, true price resiliency would be where you do take that into account. And so how much could prices decline, knowing that you have to pay all these costs if you were to sell the property or you had to refinance it, what would be your kind of number there and so that's kind of a variation on the theme and then the same thing would be true for true rent resiliency how much could rent decline where you wouldn't have negative cash flow accounting for cash flow from depreciation that tax benefit you get by owning the property too so right now if you think about it we talked about rent resiliency all night but really if rents declined by 10 percent you'd still have this weird buffer of the tax benefits of owning that rental property, provided you were still in that period of time where you can get the depreciation, right? So even if you were at break even or slightly negative, that like tax benefit of owning the property would really make it positive. So it's sort of like this extra buffer in there before you're really, really negative. You're not really negative with that cash flow from depreciation until you get below the cash flow from depreciation number two. Does that make sense? And so this idea of true rent resiliency would, in theory, it's not created yet, would take into account cash flow from depreciation on those as well. So for those that wondered, hey, I thought this class was called um, cash flow resiliency and equity resiliency. And you're right, it was. At at first I was like, you know, I'm calling this cash flow resiliency because it's how resilient is your cash flow to a decline in rent? Or equity resiliency, how, how resilient is your equity to a decline in price, and the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, if I named it those, which I think makes sense, but if I named it those, I would avoid these extra ones that I plan on doing, and so I decided to go back and rename the, the terms to rent resiliency and price resiliency. Now, So now it's how much, how resilient are you to a decline in rent, or how resilient are you to a decline in price, because I wanted to add things like vacancy resiliency. How resilient are you to an increase in vacancy? or property insurance resiliency? How resilient are you in your cash flow to an increase in property insurance? Or property taxes resiliency? How resilient are you in cash flow to an increase in property taxes or maintenance resiliency? How resilient are you to an increase in maintenance or capEx as, expe- as examples so? For example, with maintenance, you could say, how much maintenance go up before you have negative cash flow? That would be maintenance resiliency. So that's why it got renamed. Does that make sense why I got renamed now? Okay. All right, would you guys like to see my personal portfolio, rent resiliency, and price resiliency, to kind of get a feel for what does somebody who has an established portfolio and might actually, I don't know, think that they know what they're doing, um, do that, okay? So here's my my own personal portfolio. This is my average price resiliency. And I should tell you, I'm not acquiring any properties, not selling any properties, not refinancing any properties. So it looks really plain, right? Because there's not a lot of stuff going on. It's just like things getting paid off over time. So this is price resiliency. The typical, the average property I have has got a price resiliency of whatever this is, 58%, 50-something percent, high 50s. So my property values can go down 58% before I would have negative equity on average. Does that seem pretty conservative? I think it's pretty conservative. Mm -hmm. So that's what it is. It'll take me a while to get here because I've got some properties that I did new loans on when loan interest rates were low. Okay? What about rent resiliency? Rents can drop, whatever this is, high 20% before I would have negative cash flow. Okay, and then it gets better Eventually when I pay off all the remaining properties where I did a refinance all at a bunch of time, then it goes up to about 80% decline where I can do that. So that's about what I personally have, it is what I personally have in my portfolio. Does that help you guys give you some insight as to what I think is a reasonably conservative number? I also have a lot of months of reserves, way more than 12, way more than 12. So even if this was lower, I would feel really comfortable. Make sense? Yeah. So to get here. Yeah. I mean, this is your years, years into this. Yes. Did you start at those low? No. Yeah. Nope. You started. You didn't start here. No, I didn't and start. You started at those higher risk like. Yeah. Like yeah, because yeah. if you think, so the question was, you know, you didn't start here. So when you were getting started, were you at these higher, risk like rent resiliency and things. You have to. Yeah, you have to because if you think about it, you know, by definition, if I put 25% down to acquire property, well, I have whatever it is, 25% yeah. things before I could do that, right? So, yeah, now um, with the equity you have in your property, now I'm at 50 whatever that is, 55, 58, I don't even know what the number is, but it's not 25 anymore. Right? The longest property you oh. Not very long at this point. Yeah, this has been turnover. Yeah, so not very long at this point. But I mean, part of this is market appreciation too, right? And there's definitely, there's at least one nomad property. There's actually two nomad properties in there. Right, but how do you, you know, one of the things to think about is how do you change this, right? One of the ways you could change it is you put a free and clear property or two or three in there. And that can overall change the average, right? So there's free and clear properties in there, too. All right. Any final questions? Is that helpful, seeing this too? Surprise. I don't usually show my stuff. Uh, any questions? Yeah, awesome. So first, kind
0: of statement, then question. So from my understanding over the last few graphs, most of the variance is probably
1: between ten to fifteen percent. It depends on your strategy and what you're doing, right? If you're buying free and clear properties, no. If you're doing these like highly leveraged, you know, fifteen percent down, twenty percent down, twenty five percent down, or nomad five percent down, acquiring a year apart, or Burr where you're kinda of like trying to pull your money out, all those things vary depending on what you're doing.
0: But if you, if you're kind of- Going back to where we started in class, then if you would rather go zero down and have the rest in cash or index yeah. or whatever else, the main what four or five dips we've had in the last 100 years, haven't they only lasted like one to four-ish years on average?
1: I, I don't know that data that well that I can comment on it. But it doesn't sound unreasonable that you had relatively short periods of time where the dips didn't last forever.
0: So I guess where I'm I would think there would be less risk than hold the, trying to ride that out with the reserves to the side than the additional equivalent of being above it percent wise and holding it that way.
1: But I, don't I know think they're related. So I think your question is, I'll reword it for you. I think your question is, is it better to have a lot of reserves and not worry as much about rent resiliency because you have the reserves to handle it or should you have you know, 20% plus as far as rent resiliency, where you might have some negative cash flow, but you can kind of hold it, and I think it's a combination. It's like, it's you know, if you have 10 over here, then you have to have 20 over here, and if you have 20 over here, you have to have 10 over here, and and if you're waiting them. And then the numbers are arbitrary. It's like sort of like this balancing act of, if you're really low rent resiliency, you're high risk, right? You can you have a, a small amount before you go negative. Then having reserves, big reserves, makes a lot of sense. If you are you know, you have really good, if, you're, if you've got rent resiliency like I have in my portfolio, where property values or, or rents can go down, whatever this number is, you know, 28% or whatever the number is here, then needing reserves is probably not that important, right? I still have crazy reserves. I mean, I'll tell you, it's like over the top, but you don't need that as much if you have 28% rent resiliency. This, this makes sense, right? So it's this balancing act. And this is sort of what we were talking about when you first came into class, but off recording, is that looking at all these different measures of risk, you have to like weigh them against each other because you can have, you know, your debt to income can be one thing and your your debt to net worth and your liquid debt to net worth and like all those kind of measures, um, all the, or liquid, I'm sorry, debt to liquid net worth. Like all these measures can be kind of coming into play and you're like, well, if I'm gonna have this, then I definitely wanna have on the upper end of reserves. Or if I'm gonna have this, then I definitely wanna keep this there. There's probably a whole class I should do on reserves that will cover a lot of this, right? It'll like pull from all these different classes with the rent resiliency and you know the kind of measures of other risk and things of that nature and show you how I think reserves should change based on that. I think there's like a minimum and then I think you probably should have more. Just as one example, if you're gonna have negative cash flow when you're buying a Nomad property, I think it's prudent to take whatever the negative cash flow is, set that aside as party reserves and X number of months of reserves, right? I think you already know that you're going to have this amount of negative cash flow. So that should be part of your reserve calculation to begin with, plus then six months or 12 months or whatever you're doing for that. Like That's the way that I would think about it. And so there's a whole bunch of things like that that I probably need to teach in a reserves class, um, and which I'll put on my list. I'm sure that'll come up in a, in a question for the, how I'm going to choose the classes in the future. So does that answer your question? Okay. Any other questions? Was this helpful? The kind of like rent resiliency, price resiliency? I know like there's some parts in there where it may get a little bit slow because I'm showing you a lot of charts and they're really similar, but I do also think that seeing a bunch of different examples gives you a feel that you can't get. It's almost like you have to work through the math problems in your book to, and it's boring and not fun, but then you get a much better feel for like what the range of how they work are. So sorry, but it was, I think it was helpful. So cool. Thank you all for coming. I will see you all soon. Bye-bye for now. You're welcome. With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up and rents up, but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates. Cash flow on rental properties in Inglewood is harder than ever. Book a call with the Real Estate Financial Planner to apply our proprietary 88 strategies to improve cash flow on your rentals. See the show notes for a link to schedule your call and improve your cash flow today.
0: If you're a real estate agent, lender, or professional in Inglewood that wants to help our real estate investor listeners, consider reaching out to learn about collaboration opportunities with this podcast. We'd love to add more value to our listeners by having you assist our investors buy, sell, and finance their real estate investments. See the show notes to schedule a call to discuss collaboration opportunities.